0: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look
1: inside your genes.
2: We might joke about the battle of the sexes, but it turns out that it's actually true. Well, at least for a hundred or so imprinted genes.
0: We thought that most of these genes were going to be growth regulatory genes and genes that were important in the embryo and the the fetus. But as time has gone on, we've found genes that have other properties that are beyond fetal growth. Plus, what opossums can teach us about sex, reporting back from a
2: very special scientific meeting and a superhero-styled Gene of the Month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for April 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I've been off on my travels again, this time to a conference at Warwick University, taking advantage of the glorious spring sunshine by spending three days in a windowless lecture theatre. But it was all worth it to hear about the very latest advances from the world of biological research. On the first night, I headed to the bar to catch up with one of the meeting organisers, Professor Rebecca Oakey from King's College London, to find out what we could expect over the next three days.
3: Well the soul of this meeting is a real combination of the British Society for Developmental Biology, the British Society of Cell Biology and the Genetic Society uh, bringing together themes that overlap and complement um, each other.
2: So this is really covering most of the aspects of life from the genes that are controlling cells the cells themselves and how they're behaving and then how that's kind of
3: working as animals and plants grow absolutely and all of that underpinned by obviously genetic mechanisms and molecular biology and together that just brings the picture into into sharp focus around everything from nucleic acids to growing organisms
2: What are the particular themes that you're really interested in from
3: the Genetic Society point of view? This time we've been able to host the um, Genetic Society uh, Lecture for 2017, which was given by Marisa Bartholomew on genomic imprinting. And that's been a fantastic overview of her life's work, plus a lot of work of of those around her in the field. And every year the Genetic Society uh, president is able to nominate a medal and that's called the Mendel Medal, and Wendy Bickmore has nominated a famous uh, plant nurses, David Balkham from Cambridge. So that's two lectures to really look forward to, but there's lots and lots and lots of talks. Are there sort of broad themes that I should be looking out for? Well, the two themes that appeal to me the most, I guess, are the epigenetics sessions, where we have a really fantastic lineup of people working on epigenetics from metabolism through to regulatory networks and uh, genome architecture and transcription regulation in multiple organisms such as C. elegans and this time I guess the other session that I'm particularly interested in is on unusual model systems or, or tractable new systems which include things like oak trees and ash trees. We're also looking at social insects such as bees and ants bringing together some things which we perhaps wouldn't normally think about as being tools in, in genetics or cell biology. So we're used
2: to things like C. elegans, the little tiny nematode worm, mice, fruit flies, all this kind of stuff. So we can expect to see some and uh, maybe quite wacky stuff. Is that what you're looking I forward think to in these so sessions? too.
3: I think those trees are going to be looking really, really interesting with their complex genomes. Some of them are partially sequenced, some of them are not sequenced. These are new ideas around thinking about organisms that perhaps we haven't really been able to access before. What are you hoping to come away with at the end of these three days? So I'm hoping to come away with a a good context. I think context is something that we, we certainly miss when we go to very specialist meetings. I think broad meetings really challenge us to try and understand things we didn't really know, how they fitted into the normal things we think about that's really important for our trainees for our PhD students and postdocs but actually really super important for even more sophisticated researchers too.
2: And we're here at the first evening reception. People are chatting away in the bar, lots of conversations starting already. For me, this is always the heart of a conference, is the conversations around it rather than necessarily the
3: talks. Is that that what you're hoping for as well? I think distilling the talks in the bar is really important. It sets off great ideas, potential collaborations, and just, again, bringing that context to what we sometimes really narrow down in our own labs and lives.
2: Professor Rebecca Oakey from King's College London, who was part of the meeting's scientific organising committee on behalf of the Genetic Society. As Rebecca mentioned, one of the first talks we heard was from Marisa Bartholomew, Professor of Cell and Developmental Biology at the University of Pennsylvania, who gave the 2017 Genetic Society Medal Lecture about her work on genomic imprinting. I started by asking her to explain exactly what imprinting actually is.
0: So genomic imprinting is a process that affects only a small number of genes. It's mammalian. And the bottom line of a genomic imprinting is that these small number of genes are only expressed either from their maternal allele or their paternal allele. The copy they inherit from mom or the copy they inherit from dad. And the other copy is repressed. For most of the genes we get one copy from mum, one copy from dad and
2: effectively it's a backup system. If one breaks, the other one works. But these genes it's only mum's copy or only dad's copy and is that in in all cells that it's only mum or dad's copy
0: that is switched on and the other one is switched off? So for certain genes it's in, it's in all cells but for other genes there are tish, there's tissue specific imprinting. So for example there may only be expression from one of the parental copies only in the brain or only in the placenta and other tissues normally have both copies so there's a lot of different variations on this but for other genes it's everywhere everywhere the gene is expressed it's only expressed from a, from one of the copies and it's always if it's the mother's copy it's always the mother's copy.
2: What sort of genes are we talking about that are only active if they come from mum
0: or only active if they come from dad? Are there kind of common traits between these sort of genes? Yeah, so I think when we first started studying it and thinking about it, we thought that most of these genes were going to be growth regulatory genes and genes that were important in the embryo and the, and the fetus. But as time has gone on, we've found genes that have other properties that are beyond fetal growth that are properties in in behavior, properties in postnatal energy homeostasis. So so their properties are pretty diverse and you can no longer just say, well, these are growth regulatory types of genes. And it may also be that there are only a few whose imprinting is important and that others have gone along as bystanders. They are just in the region of an imprinted gene and they went along. But at this point it's not very easy for us to tell. That said, we can say that imprinting is pretty highly conserved between mice and humans, so there must be something there that maintains that that selection for imprinted genes.
2: I do remember the kind of idea that the genes that are active from dad are the sort of genes that make fetuses grow really big because they're trying to suck all the resources out of mum. And then the uh, genes that are expressed from the mum's copy are the ones that are trying to suppress that. But you're saying that it's, it's kind of a bit more complicated than that. I,
0: I mean, I think it's a bit more complicated, although that is still the prevailing theory. And, and people who study imprinting from an evolutionary perspective really seem to focus on those types of traits. But you could say that behavioral traits are also something that's important for maternal or paternal care. We're not really that clear on, on the evolutionary purpose of imprinting, but we do know it's there, and we're interested in studying you know, what these genes are, how they're regulated, and what the consequences there are to both to, to human health. So let's unpack that a little bit more. What do we know about
2: how this is controlled? How in these cells it's only the copy that comes from dad is active and mum's copy is off, or vice versa, when only mum's copy is on and dad's copy is switched off. What are the sort of the, the molecular nuts and bolts that are making that activity
0: or silencing happen? One of the things we we know for certain is that most imprinted genes are found grouped in clusters in the genome. And we also know that they're regulated by these small bits of DNA, maybe only one kilobase in length. And these bits of DNA seem to have epigenetic modifications that are put on in a parental specific way. So there may be DNA methylation or chromatin modifications, and they come on either in the father's germline or the mother's germline. So at the time when eggs and sperm then meet, for a fertilization event, they already have their maternal specific marks or their paternal specific marks. And they go and once they go into a fertilized egg, they're saying, oh, I came from mom, oh, I came from dad, I'll be active, I'll be repressed. And so it is the germline where a lot of these these events of imprint establishment take place. And then after fertilization, they're read by the normal machinery that reads everything else in the genome to you know, turn things on, turn things off during development. I always like to think of these epigenetic modifications as almost like sticky
2: notes or post-it notes. So they're, you're saying they're being put on in the eggs. When, when mum's making eggs, it's like, okay, these genes all came from me. And in dad's sperm, it's like, these genes all came from me. But then if the embryo then, when it grows up, and makes eggs or sperm depending on whether it's a male or female presumably all those marks have to be taken off again and and reset
0: right and so so right so then the sticky notes are sort of tear, torn up disposed of and then as they go through you know becoming eggs or becoming sperm they're saying okay they know i'm an egg. I'm a sperm. Part by their genetic composition, part by their environment. And they say, okay, I'm an egg. Now I will put the marks on during um, growth of the oocyte, and uh, right before ovulation. Or if they're in the sperm, they'll say, okay, I'm. A, I know I'm in the male germline. I will put on my marks. And so, so they, so they know that. But they, they take what's present in the somatic tissue erase it and restart again and that's really critical for the life cycle of these imprints so we have this cycle of imprinting
2: of marks coming from mom marks coming from dad making an embryo with mom's genes on or dad's genes on wiping them out starting again round and round and round so we know that that's kind of how it works normally but what about some situations where it's gone wrong are there diseases that are associated with problems in this imprinting
0: so there are there are quite a few um, Imprinting disorders such as the the overgrowth and undergrowth disorders Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and Silver-Russell syndrome, as well as some neurobehavioral disorders such as Angelman syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome, and as well as other imprinting disorders. And there are cases where there's just um, deletions or mutations in the expressed copy of a gene that leads to this disorder. But there are also cases of which, depending upon the disorder, how how prevalent they are, were there just mistakes in that marking of the imprint that occurs in the germline, or maybe something happens during gametogenesis where it's erased a little bit, or after fertilization something happens. It's not clear, but what we can see in, in some of these children that have... Beckwith-Wiedemann or Silver Russell, they'll have a mosaic pattern in their cells so that some of their cells have their DNA methylation that looks right, normal, and some cells have lost it. And so we don't know if there's something that happens very early in development that leads to this or if there's an environmental perturbation. One of the things that, that my lab as well as a few others have studied is the effect of um, assisted reproductive technologies on imprints, and we've using a mouse model, we have shown that some of the techniques used in assisted reproduction could lead to some of mistakes in maintaining appropriate imprints that could lead to these disorders. Basically, IVF in vitro fertilizations. Right, right. right. That's correct. And there's been an association with increased incidence of Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. So that, so the environment that an egg or a sperm or an early embryo in can be very important for appropriate imprints. Now that we
2: know that there are these imprinted genes and starting to understand how they work, what
0: are still the big questions? What do we still really need to know? I mean, I think there, I think there still are a lot of big questions, and that is how are these genes recognised in the germline to be modified or marked with their parental origins so they their imprinted? That's another thing that we and others are still working on. So there still are a lot of really important questions to answer. And, um, and again, since it affects human health, it is something that we really want to drill down.
2: Marissa Bartolome from the University of Pennsylvania. And now it's time to find out what's been in the genetics news this month. A new paper in the journal Cell prompted a flurry of interest from people wanting to turn back the clock and erase the signs of ageing. Researchers at Erasmus University Medical Centre in the Netherlands discovered that regular doses of a small molecule helps the body to get rid of worn-out and faulty cells, boosting the health and appearance of elderly mice. The chemical, a tiny protein known as a peptide, works by blocking the activity of a protein called FOXO4, This usually interacts with a protein called p53, the so-called guardian of the genome, to keep elderly cells in a state known as senescence, where they stay alive but slow down and age. But if FOXO4 is blocked, then p53 kicks into action and causes these senescent cells to die. Because FOXO4 is only active in senescent cells, the treatment is highly specific and has very few side effects, even if animals were given the chemical for more than 10 months. But even though it seems to be safe in the long term, at least in laboratory mice, the benefits were quick to arrive. The scientists saw fur growing back in balding, ageing mice after just 10 days of treatment, with fitness benefits showing up after three weeks and improved kidney function after a month. While the work has only been done in naturally aged mice and also animals that have been genetically engineered to age rapidly, the researchers are planning initial human safety studies in people with brain tumours that show high levels of FOXO4. So it's still likely to be some time before an anti-aging drug becomes a reality. Researchers at Florida Atlantic University have developed a new way to determine the sex of endangered baby sea turtles, publishing their findings in the journal The Anatomical Record. While many species use sex chromosomes, such as our own mammalian X and Y chromosomes, sea turtles do it differently. Eggs that are incubated in warmer temperatures tend to produce females, while those laid on cooler sand are more likely to be males. The new test focuses on measuring the levels of a protein called CIRPB, which is found in high amounts in the developing ovaries of female turtles, even at the hatchling stage, but at much lower levels in males. When researchers compared CIRPB measurements to conventional turtle sexing techniques, the new test had a 93% success rate for loggerhead turtles and 100% for leatherbacks, suggesting it's reliable and reproducible. As global temperatures rise, there's evidence that this is skewing sea turtle populations in a more female direction, which could risk sending the species towards extinction if there aren't enough males to go round. To make things more tricky, a sea turtle's sex isn't obvious from its anatomy until it starts to approach sexual maturity, and that can take at least a decade. Developing this method to quickly and easily determine the sex ratios of newly hatched baby sea turtles is a vital tool for conservationists trying to track and preserve the species. Scientists at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York have discovered how some proteins can withstand high temperatures and maintain their function while other similar structures fall apart, publishing their findings in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The researchers compared the composition and structures of 15 closely related proteins, which are all members of the thioridoxin family. These are present in all living things, from bacteria that survive in boiling hydrothermal ocean vents to those that can survive in freezing polar seas. Nearly half of these were sequences of ancient proteins dating back more than 4 billion years, which were reconstructed using special genetic archaeology techniques. The team found that the difference in stability at high temperatures is mainly due to differences in how much energy is required to unfold them, reflecting the stability of the chemical and physical bonds within each protein's structure. Intriguingly, the scientists discovered that the ancient proteins unfolded more slowly than the modern versions, in some cases 3,000 times more slowly, even though they fold up into the correct structures at the same rate. For example, in the case of two seemingly similar thioredoxins, one unfolded within seven seconds at high temperature, while another lasted for six hours. The discovery could provide important clues for biological engineers designing enzymes or other protein molecules that can withstand the high temperatures needed for some industrial applications, suggesting that they should look back into ancient history in search of tomorrow's new ideas. And the references for those stories are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, our gene of the month is a bit of a superhero. But first, it's time to hear from another of the speakers at the spring meeting. Bryony Leake from the Francis Crick Institute in London, whose presentation was part of the newly tractable systems strand of talks. I couldn't help but catch up with her afterwards to talk about the animals that she's studying.
1: So we work with opossums, they're from South America and they're they're about the size of a rat which makes them a very useful model uh, animal for studying marsupial biology because they're easy to keep in the lab because they're small and they eat a a normal diet just like a rat or a mouse would.
2: So what are
1: marsupials and why are they interesting and how, how are they different from mammals like us? So marsupials are basically um, an earlier evolutionary form of mammals. They branched away from the kind of mammals that we are um, about 180 million years ago during evolution. And they're they're similar in some ways. They feed their young milk and their young develop um, inside of them. But they're, they're also different in that their babies are born at a much more um, developmentally early stage, basically still what would look like an embryo in a, in a mouse. And they crawl up the mother's tummy and attach to her nipples and get milk from, from outside and finish their, their development there. So they're very useful to study um, aspects of early development because they're already external to the to the mums. They're easier to study.
2: And what sort
1: of things are you trying
2: to look at with your opossums? You're keeping them in your lab.
1: Yeah, so they live... Um, With us in the Francis Crick Institute, in in little cages, um, and we we use them to study the sex chromosomes. So in mammals like us, and also in mammals that are marsupials, um, males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and females have two X chromosomes. And we're interested in learning how those those sex chromosomes have evolved. For example, how is it possible for females to have two X chromosomes, and therefore twice as many genes from the X chromosome, as a male that only has one? And we know that in mice, female mice actually cope with this by turning off one of their X-chromosomes, so they have the same amount of X-chromosome genes as in a male. Um, And we're interested in studying how the same process might be happening in in marsupials and what that can tell us about the evolution of that process. There are
2: some other kind of animals. There's things like duck-billed platypuses that they're not marsupials, they're not mammals,
1: they are Something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we know about them? So those are called monotremes, and they are also mammals because they feed their young with milk. But unlike uh, marsupials and and us, they lay eggs. So their their babies do not develop inside of them in, in a womb. Um, and they're even stranger. They actually don't have the same sex chromosomes that we have or that opossums have. They have five X chromosomes and five Y chromosomes. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's, a, it's quite a confusing picture, actually. Um, there are some really great researchers in Australia who work on them, but they're quite hard to, to study because they're quite rare, so not much more is really known about them.
2: In terms of understanding how this X chromosome, Y chromosome business works, what do you still want to find out about how the opossums' X and Y chromosomes work?
1: That's a really cool question. So it's known in a mouse that the way that the X chromosome gets shut down is that one special gene makes a very, very long RNA, lots and lots of copies of it, and this RNA wraps all around the chromosome that's going to be shut off, basically like tying something up in a bunch of string to to compact it, and... Our lab has found a similar gene in opossums that seems to do the same thing, but it's not the same gene. So they've evolved separately um, throughout evolution, but to do basically the same job, which is quite cool. And we're interested in learning about what happens next. So we know about this, this special gene that shuts things down, but in mice there are lots of secondary and tertiary processes that then happen to make sure that that chromosome stays turned off. And these are all epigenetic processes. So we're now looking into the same kinds of processes in the opossum to see what kind of epigenetics are keeping that chromosome silent.
2: Bryony Leak from the Francis Crick Institute. After three exhausting days of presentations, not to mention one of the longest conference discos I've ever attended, it was time to head home. I met up with Rebecca Oakey in the final coffee break to chat about her highlights of the conference, starting with the very first lecture of the whole meeting, a talk from Bonnie Bassler from Princeton University in the US about how cholera bacteria club together.
3: So Bonnie's talk really focused on uh, bacteria and their uh, behaviour, how they, how they group together in these biofilms, which are groups of bacteria it, uh, that arrange themselves in a way that stick to your gut and form um, an infection. And just the, the, the way she presented that work, the, the visual tools that she used to show us about those bacteria was absolutely fantastic and I think what we really need to do is understand more about cholera because actually cholera is a model organism for so many other nasty gastrointestinal infections.
2: And what about some of the other big plenary talks? There, there was Bill Harris talking about his lifetime of work on the, the eye, the retina.
3: So Bill Harris really gave a, f- a fantastic personal but very scientific reflection on his work um, over the years where he started in California, moved to Cambridge, has been working basically on understanding um, the different cells in the in the retina and by characterising them with all these beautiful different colours and fluorophores, we see a real visual picture of the anatomy of the retina.
2: What was lovely about that talk and some of the talks that gave more of an overview was seeing how techniques have changed. So starting from work done maybe 20, 30 years ago when you've got really basic techniques and everything was so hard and so difficult and now you can label stuff with fluorescent dyes in, in all shades of the rainbow.
3: Yeah, the, the real the real visual um, pictures we saw in terms of those multi- multi-colour dyes and techniques for labelling cells is just fantastic. you know, starting off with some very, very simple techniques. The anatomy is still the same, but the way we can view it is so much more complicated and so much more uh, informative.
2: One of the other strands in the conference has been something called newly tractable systems. What did we mean by that? What were you trying to achieve? And what were some of the standout talks there?
3: So we've always, in biology, used models to study biological systems. And some of those models are really well understood. Their genomes are sequenced. We know a lot about the um, genes that, that act in these organisms. They behave in standard ways. But actually, what we really want to do is sort of push that out and start looking at other organisms which are not as well understood, maybe don't have all their genome sequenced, maybe don't have any of their genome sequenced. So we were really looking at bees and trees, honeybees, bumblebees, ash trees, oak trees, and really trying to push ahead the genetic sides of organisms that wouldn't traditionally been used in breeding experiments. This is a genetic society joint meeting with a lot of epigenetics talks you know, getting towards being the epigenetic society well i'm afraid there was quite a heavy emphasis on epigenetics but that was good because it actually crossed all of the societies and there were there were epigenetics talks within every grouping but i think we had some very um good talks discussing uh, the moving elements the transposons in the genome which pop around and and they interdigitated amongst all sorts of different disciplines but were brought together i think by david Balkans' talk uh, which was a medal talk the genetic Society uh, medal talk which was just fantastic as it talked about uh, so many of these sort of movable elements in plants.
2: And we're on the last morning today the packed lunches are being prepared everyone's slightly wrestling with their hangovers after an excellent disco last night Uh, but were there any
3: talks this morning that caught your eye? Well there were two absolutely stunning talks first of all we've got a brand new DNA methyl transferase DNMT C. We thought A and B were the end of the stories. But we have a new enzyme, one that has just popped out of a very, very complicated uh, screen that wasn't looking at all for a methyl transferase. And it just popped right out. And I think this is just the way that we need to do biology and genetics is to actually look and see what's there rather than looking for something that we're expecting to find there. And that was amazing talk. And that was from Deborah Borchese's group in, in uh, the Curie Institute in Paris. It was an absolutely fantastic. And so that's a new enzyme
2: that puts on these epigenetic marks, these kind of molecular post-it notes on genes. Yes. That is
3: a, a really big discovery. It is a massive discovery, and it was a beautiful science paper, and I think that we really have to learn from that that you've got to look at what, you, what, what your data tell you and not look for things in your data. It was absolutely a paradigm of... of making sure that when you look at complicated genetic things that you're not swayed by things you're expecting to find. It's really good. And secondly, Miriam Hemberger's work on the placenta, her take-home messages, it's not just about the ageing oocyte. Really, your placenta's age and the and endometrium and all those good tissues that feed the, feed the fetus are just really, really important. The older they get, the, the harder it is to have an uncomplicated um, birth. And I think in mammals that's really important because that relates to ageing and the things that we are encountering in our current society. So as we approach Easter, it's not all about the eggs? It's really not all about the eggs. Rebecca
2: Oakey from King's College London and the Genetic Society. Sadly, the other Genetic Society medal lecturer she mentioned, David Bulcombe, he's the winner of the Mendel medal, managed to escape before I could grab an interview with him. I do hope to track him down for a future show to discuss his groundbreaking work on RNA interference in plants, so watch this space. And finally, it's our gene of the month, and this time it's Spidey. And yes, it was named after Spider-Man. Discovered in 2016 in those famous fruit flies Drosophila melanogaster, Spidey encodes a type of protein known as a steroid dehydrogenase, which is involved in making part of the waxy substance that coats the outer layer of the insect, known as the cuticle. Not only does this biological raincoat help to protect flies from the weather and any would-be microbial invaders, it also carries important information about the sex, age and social status of the wearer. It turns out that knocking out Spidey in fly larvae is lethal and the maggots are unable to hatch out of their pupil stage. But more intriguingly, reducing the activity of the gene in adult male flies has an even more striking effect. Around half of male flies with reduced Spidey end up firmly stuck to the walls of the plastic tubes they live in, hence the homage to Spider-Man. The loss of Spidey changes the properties of the waxy compounds making up their normally non-stick cuticle coat, meaning that the flies' legs become coated with food and other gunk, and they become glued down. Unlike their comic book namesake, these flies can't use their sticky powers for good, and eventually they die of starvation, coming unstuck in the metaphorical rather than the literal sense. Versions of Spidey are found in many insects, and researchers hope that understanding more about its role in development, stickiness and protection could lead to the development of more effective targeted pesticides. And looking outside the insect world, maybe we could harness Spidey's special behaviour to develop better antimicrobial or non-stick coatings, though whether they can repel Spider-Man himself remains to be seen. That's all for now. Next month, I'll be zooming in on cancer. And after that, I'll be back with more from the spring meeting with tales of bees and trees. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next month for another peek inside your genes.